Book First, Chapter Second, Sections One and Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Felicity Campbell. In the Days of the Comet, Book First, Chapter Second, Sections One and Two. Section One. Chapter the Second, Nettie, Section One. I cannot now remember, the story resumed, what interval separated that evening on which Parload first showed me the comet. I think I only pretended to see it then, and the Sunday afternoon I spent at Checks Hill. Between the two there was time enough for me to give notice and leave Rawdon's, to seek for some other situation very strenuously in vain, to think and say many hard and violent things to my mother and to Parload, and to pass through some phases of very profound wretchedness. There must have been a passionate correspondence with Nettie, but all the froth and fury of that has faded now out of my memory. All I have clear now is that I wrote one magnificent farewell to her, casting her off forever, and that I got in reply a prim little note to say, but even if there was to be an end to everything, that was no excuse for writing such things as I had done, and then I think I wrote again in a vein I considered satirical. To that she did not reply. That interval was at least three weeks and probably four, because the comet, which had been on the first occasion only a dubious speck in the sky, certainly visible only when it was magnified, was now a great white presence, brighter than Jupiter, and casting a shadow on its own account. It was now actively present in the world of human thought. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was looking for its waxing splendour as the sun went down. The papers, the musicals, the hoardings echoed it. Yes, the comet was already dominant before I went over to make everything clear to Nettie and Parload had spent two hoarded pounds in buying himself a spectroscope, so that he could see for himself, night after night, that mysterious, that stimulating line, the unknown line in the green. How many times, I wonder, did I look at the smudgy, quivering symbol of the unknown things that were rushing upon us out of the inhuman void, before I rebelled? But at last I could stand it no longer, and I reproached Parload very bitterly for wasting his time in astronomical dilettantism. Here, said I, we're on the verge of the biggest lockout in the history of this countryside. Here's distress and hunger coming. Here's all the capitalistic competitive system like a wound inflamed, and you spend your time gaping at that damned silly streak of nothing in the sky. Parload stared at me. Yes, I do he said slowly, as though it was a new idea. Don't I? I wonder why. I want to start meetings of an evening on Harden's Waste. You think they'd listen? They'd listen fast enough now. They didn't before, said Parload, looking at his pet instrument. There was a demonstration of unemployed at Swathingley on Sunday. They got to stone-throwing, Parload said nothing for a little while, and I said several things. He seemed to be considering something. 
but after all he said at last with an awkward movement towards the spectroscope that does signify something the comet yes what can it signify you don't want me to believe in astrology what does it matter what flames in the heavens when men are starving on earth it's it's science science what we want now is socialism not science he still seemed reluctant to give up his comet socialism's all right he said but if that thing up there was to hit the earth it might matter nothing matters but human beings suppose it killed them all oh said i that's rot i wonder said parload dreadfully divided in his allegiance he looked at the comet he seemed on the verge of repeating his growing information about the nearness of the paths of the earth and comet and all that might ensue from that so i cut in with something i had got out of a now forgotten writer called ruskin a volcano of beautiful language and nonsensical suggestions who prevailed very greatly with eloquent excitable young men in those days something it was about the insignificance of science and the supreme importance of life Parload stood listening, half turned towards the sky with the tips of his fingers on his spectroscope. He seemed to come to a sudden decision. No, I don't agree with you, Ledford, he said. You don't understand about science. Parload rarely argued with that bluntness of opposition. I was so used to entire possession of our talk that his brief contradiction struck me like a blow. Don't agree with me, I repeated no said parload but how i believe science is of more importance than socialism he said socialism's a theory science science is something more and that was really all he seemed to be able to say we embarked upon one of those queer arguments illiterate young men used always to find so heating science or socialism it was, of course, like arguing which is right, left-handedness, or a taste for onions. It was altogether impossible opposition. But the range of my rhetoric enabled me at last to exasperate Parload, and his mere repudiation of my conclusions sufficed to exasperate me, and we ended in the key of a positive quarrel. Oh, very well, said I, so long as I know where we are. I slammed his door as though I dynamited his house, and went raging down the street, but I felt that he was already back at the window, worshipping his blessed line in the green before I got round the corner. I had to walk for an hour or so before I was cool enough to go home, and it was Parload who had first introduced me to socialism. Recreant! The most extraordinary things used to run through my head in those days, I will confess that my mind ran persistently that evening upon revolutions after the best French pattern, and I sat on a committee of safety and tried backsliders. Parload was there, among the prisoners, backsliderissimus, aware too late of the error of his ways. His hands were tied behind his back, ready for the shambles. Through the open door one heard the voice of justice, the rude justice of the people, I was sorry, but I had to do my duty. If we punish those who would betray us to kings, said I with a sorrowful deliberation, 
how much the more must we punish those who would give over the state to the pursuit of useless knowledge and so with a gloomy satisfaction sent him off to the guillotine ah parload parload if only you'd listened to me earlier parload none the less that quarrel made me extremely unhappy parload was my only gossip and it cost me much to keep away from him and think evil of him with no one to listen to me evening after evening that was a very miserable time for me even before my last visit to chexhill my long unemployed hours hung heavily on my hands i kept away from home all day partly to support a fiction that i was sedulously seeking another situation and partly to escape the persistent question in my mother's eyes why did you quarrel with mr rawdon why did you why do you keep on going about with a sullen face and risk offending it more i spent most of the morning in the newspaper room of the public library writing impossible applications for impossible posts i remember that among other things of the sort i offered my services to a firm of private detectives a sinister breed of traders upon base jealousies now happily vanished from the world and wrote apropos of an advertisement for stevedores that i did not know what the duties of a stevedore might be but that i was apt and willing to learn and in the afternoons and evenings i wandered through the strange lights and shadows of my native valley and hated all created things until my wanderings were checked by the discovery that i was wearing out my boots the stagnant inconclusive malaria of that time i perceived that i was an evil-tempered ill-disposed youth with a great capacity for hatred but there was an excuse for hate it was wrong of me to hate individuals to be rude harsh and vindictive to this person or that but indeed it would have been equally wrong to have taken the manifest offer life made me without resentment i see now clearly and calmly what i then felt obscurely and with an unbalanced intensity that my conditions were intolerable my work was tedious and laborious and it took up an unreasonable proportion of my time i was ill-clothed ill-fed ill-housed ill-educated and ill-trained my will was suppressed and cramped to the pitch of torture i had no reasonable pride in myself and no reasonable chance of putting anything right it was a life hardly worth living that a large proportion of the people about me had no better a lot that many had a worse does not affect these facts it was a life in which contentment would have been disgraceful if some of them were contented or resigned so much the worse for every one no doubt it was hasty and foolish of me to throw up my situation but everything was so obviously aimless and foolish in our social organization that i do not feel disposed to blame myself even for that except in so far as it pained my mother and caused her anxiety think of the one comprehensive fact of the lockout that year was a bad year a year of world-wide economic disorganization through their want of intelligent direction the great trust of american ironmasters a gang of energetic narrow-minded furnace owners had smelted far more iron than the whole world had any demand for in those days there existed no means of estimating any need of that sort beforehand they had done this without even consulting the ironmasters of any other country during their period of activity 
they had drawn into their employment a great number of workers and had erected a huge productive plant it is manifestly just that people who do headlong stupid things of this sort should suffer but in the old days it was quite possible it was customary for the real blunderers in such disasters to shift nearly all the consequences of their incapacity no one thought it wrong for a light-witted captain of industry who had led his workpeople into overproduction into the disproportionate manufacture that is to say of some particular article to abandon and dismiss them nor was there anything to prevent the sudden frantic underselling of some trade rival in order to surprise and destroy his trade secure his customers for one's own destined needs and shift a portion of one's punishment upon him this operation of spasmodic underselling was known as dumping the american ironmasters were now dumping on the british market the british employers were of course taking their loss out of their workpeople as much as possible but in addition they were agitating for some legislation that would prevent not stupid relative excess in production but dumping not the disease but the consequences of the disease the necessary knowledge to prevent either dumping or its causes the uncorrelated production of commodities did not exist but this hardly weighed with them at all and in answer to their demands there had arisen a curious party of retaliatory protectionists who combined vague proposals for spasmodic responses to these convulsive attacks from foreign manufacturers with the very evident intention of achieving financial adventures the dishonest and reckless elements were indeed so evident in this movement as to add very greatly to the general atmosphere of distrust and insecurity and in the recoil from the prospect of fiscal power in the hands of the class of men known as the new financiers one heard frightened old-fashioned statesmen asserting with passion that dumping didn't occur or that it was a very charming sort of thing to happen nobody would face and handle the rather intricate truth of the business the whole effect upon the mind of a cool observer was of a covey of unsubstantial jabbering minds drifting over a series of irrational economic cataclysms prices and employment tumbled about like towers in an earthquake and amidst the shifting masses were the common workpeople going on with their lives as well as they could suffering perplexed unorganised and for anything but violent fruitless protests impotent you cannot hope now to understand the infinite want of adjustment in the old order of things at one time there were people dying of actual starvation in india while men were burning unsaleable wheat in america it sounds like the account of a particularly mad dream does it not it was a dream a dream from which no one on earth expected an awakening to us youngsters with the positiveness the rationalism of youth it seemed that the strikes and lockouts the overproduction and misery could not possibly result simply from ignorance and want of thought and feeling we needed more dramatic factors than these mental fogs these mere atmospheric devils we fled therefore to that common refuge of the unhappy ignorant a belief in callous insensate plots we called them plots against the poor you can still see how we figured it in any museum by looking up the caricatures of capital and labour 
that adorned the German and American socialistic papers of the old time. End of section 1. Section 2. I had cast Nettie off in an eloquent epistle, had really imagined the affair was over forever. I've done with women, I said to Parload, and then there was silence for more than a week. Before that week was over, I was wondering with a growing emotion what next would happen between us. I found myself thinking constantly of Nettie, picturing her, sometimes with stern satisfaction, sometimes with sympathetic remorse, mourning, regretting, realising the absolute end that had come between us. At the bottom of my heart, I no more believed that there was an end between us than that an end would come to the world. Had we not kissed one another? Had we not achieved an atmosphere of whispering nearness? Breached our virgin shyness with one another? Of course she was mine, of course I was hers, and separations and final quarrels and harshness and distance were no more than flourishes upon that eternal fact. So at least I felt the thing, however I shaped my thoughts. Whenever my imagination got to work, as that week drew to its close, she came in as a matter of course. I thought of her recurrently all day, and dreamt of her at night. On Saturday night I dreamt of her very vividly. Her face was flushed and wet with tears, her hair a little disordered, and when I spoke to her, she turned away. In some manner, this dream left in my mind a feeling of distress and anxiety. In the morning, I had a raging thirst to see her. That Sunday, my mother wanted me to go to church very particularly. She had a double reason for that. She thought that it would certainly exercise a favourable influence upon my search for a situation throughout the next week. And in addition, Mr. Gabbitas with a certain mystery behind his glasses, had promised to see what he could do for me, and she wanted to keep him up to that promise. I half consented, and then my desire for Nettie took hold of me. I told my mother I wasn't going to church, and set off about eleven to walk the seventeen miles to Checks Hill. It greatly intensified the fatigue of that long tramp, that the sole of my boot presently split at the toe, and after I had cut the flapping portion off, a nail worked through and began to torment me. However, the boot looked all right after that operation, and gave no audible hint of my discomfort. I got some bread and cheese at a little inn on the way, and was in Checkshill Park about four. I did not go by the road past the house, and so round to the gardens, but cut over the crest beyond the second keeper's cottage, along a path Nettie used to call her own. It was a mere deer track. It led up a miniature valley and through a pretty dell in which we had been accustomed to meet, and so through the hollies and along a narrow path close by the wall of the shrubbery to the gardens. In my memory, that walk through the park before I came upon Nettie stands out very vividly. The long tramp before it is foreshortened to a mere effect of dusty road and painful boot. But the bracken valley and the sudden tumult of doubts and unwanted expectations that came to me 
stands out now as something significant, as something unforgettable, something essential to the meaning of all that followed. Where should I meet her? What would she say? I had asked these questions before and found an answer. Now they came again with a trail of fresh implications, and I had no answer for them at all. As I approached Nettie, she ceased to be the mere butt of my egotistical self-projection, the custodian of my sexual pride, and drew together and became over and above this a personality of her own, a personality and a mystery, a sphinx I had evaded, only to meet again. I find a little difficulty in describing the quality of the old-world love-making so that it may be understandable now. We young people had practically no preparation at all for the stir and emotions of adolescence. Towards the young, the world maintained a conspiracy of stimulating silences. There came no initiation. There were books, stories of a curiously conventional kind that insisted on certain qualities in every love affair and greatly intensified one's natural desire for them perfect trust, perfect loyalty, lifelong devotion. Much of the complex essentials of love were altogether hidden. One read these things, got accidental glimpses of this and that, wondered and forgot, and so one grew. Then, strange emotions, novel, alarming desires, dreams strangely charged with feeling, an inexplicable impulse of self-abandonment began to tickle queerly amongst the familiar, purely egotistical and materialistic things of boyhood and girlhood. We were like misguided travellers who had camped in the dry bed of a tropical river. Presently we were knee-deep and neck-deep in the flood. Our beings were suddenly going out from ourselves, seeking other beings. We knew not why. This novel craving for abandonment to someone of the other sex bore us away. We were ashamed and full of desire. We kept the thing a guilty secret and were resolved to satisfy it against all the world. In this state it was, we drifted in the most accidental way against some other blindly seeking creature and linked like nascent atoms. We were obsessed by the books we read, by all the talk about us that once we had linked ourselves, we were linked for life. Then afterwards, we discovered that other was also an egotism, a thing of ideas and impulses that failed to correspond with ours. So it was, I say, with the young of my class and most of the young people in our world. So it came about that I sought Nettie on the Sunday afternoon and suddenly came upon her, light-bodied, slenderly feminine, hazel-eyed, with her soft, sweet young face under the shady brim of her hat of straw, the pretty Venus I had resolved should be wholly and exclusively mine. There, all unaware of me still, she stood, my essential feminine, the embodiment of the inner thing in life for me, and moreover an unknown other, a person like myself. She held a little book in her hand, 
open as if she were walking along and reading it. That chanced to be her pose, but indeed she was standing quite still, looking away towards the grey and lichenous shrubbery wall, and, as I think now, listening. Her lips were a little apart, curved to that faint, sweet shadow of a smile. End of Book First, Chapter Second, Sections One and Two, Recording by Felicity Campbell, Book One for Me dot com, Whanganui, New Zealand.